All right, Revelation chapter 1, we continue in our series here tonight. If, if you missed out last week, that's all right. We just started the series last week, um, and Dave is working on having those on our website. If you do miss a week, um, you can at least get the audio version of it um, on our website. If, if you have issues finding that, just let me know. Um, but I'm going to give just a little bit of a recap here for those of you who missed out or have forgotten in, in the seven days that we've not met together. Um, it seems like a lot's happened in seven days with weather and cold and my Cowboys letting me down once more and uh, let's forget about those Green Bay Packers. Get them out of here. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyways, last week, uh, moving on, last week we introduced this book and here's kind of your first um, kind of point here. Uh, we saw that John... The apostle, who's one of the twelve, this is the John we're talking about, he is the one who wrote this book, Revelation. Um, so John wrote the book, Revelation, and he most likely wrote it around 95 to 96 AD. So, and if that's the case, it would be the last um, book written of the New Testament. Most of them were written around late 50s into the 60s. Um, and so... He writes it 95 to 96 A.D. while in exile on the island of Patmos, on the island of Patmos. And, um, and we see that here in Revelation chapter 1 there. Um, and this island is off the southwest coast of present-day Turkey, um, southwest coast of the present-day Turkey. And it's only an island that's about 25 miles in circumference. It's a small island. But it served as a place of banishment during the Roman kind of period. And many people believe, especially with the timeline here of when this book was written, that John would have been older in his years um, at the time of this banishment. But he was exiled there during the reign of Emperor Domitian. And Domitian ruled as the emperor of Rome from 81 to 96 AD, and he was assassinated in 96 AD, at about his mid-40s. And so about the time he was assassinated is when John would have written this book. Uh, but Domitian is a pretty important emperor when you study history in that time period, and his family um, before him, uh, some of those in his family line, were part of basically Rome destroying Jerusalem and bringing the temple down and so on and so forth. So he's a, a very important figure there. Um, but what is the book of Revelation? Um, as we saw, it, it's different. It's, it's a different book than anything else you read in the New Testament. Um, and what type of writing is it? Well, three things here. The type of writing is it, it's apocalyptic kind of writing. Um, so what type of writing is this book of Revelation? It is apocalyptic. And what we mean by that is when we open up Revelation 1.1, when we read the revelation from or the revelation of Jesus... That original word is where we get this uh, apocalyptic uh, word, and it just means revealing um, something that was once hidden. It's now being revealed. So it's apocalyptic literature, and how do you spell this? A-P-O-C-A-L-Y-P-T-I-C. Um, but anyways, th this literature is characterized by extreme visions, unique revelations by God. Often these visions are filled with strange symbols and or in imagery. So it's apocalyptic literature, but it's unique. 
still in that area of writing because a lot of the book is not just apocalyptic, it's also prophetic. It's also prophetic, P-R-O-P-H-E-T-I-C, meaning it points to happenings or events that have yet to occur. Um, so it's not just apocalyptic, it's also prophetic, it's pointing forward. Um, but it's not just prophetic either. So it's not just apocalyptic and it's not just prophetic. This is an important detail about this, this book. It's also pastoral. It's also pastoral, P-A-S-T-O-R-A-L. It's also pastoral in its content. And, and we get that when we read kind of the opening of this book and also as the closing. Um, it, it's, it, it's written very similar to like a, an epistle that you might see elsewhere in the New Testament, um, like a pastor writing to his church almost. Um, because as we see, and this brings up your next point here, or as we saw, John specifically wrote to seven, seven actual literal churches in his day. Now, there, there's a lot of different views on these churches. Some people say, hey, these churches represent different periods throughout church history. And they kind of allegorize these churches. Um, either way, these are seven literal churches in John's day. And John meant these, this letter to go to these seven literal churches. Now, where are these churches at? Well, they were in kind of Southwest Asia, which is modern-day Turkey in our day and age. Um, and John is writing to them to make known what is upon us or what is happening or to make known what was soon to happen and ultimately to encourage the believers to stand firm in Jesus, remain loyal to Jesus, be comforted and encouraged by Jesus, by the fact that no matter what you're facing now or will face, Jesus is coming again, and that changes everything. That changes everything about the current events that you and I might witness, but it also impacts and changes everything about the future. So according to one source, as we saw last week, it appears that John chose these seven churches um, largely because they formed a natural route for a circuit rider. In other words, somebody could go and take this letter and then naturally just follow this, this course to hit up all these cities. And what are those churches? Um, we get Smyrna, or we get Ephesus, we get Smyrna, we get Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, which we'll look more closely at as we go along. Um, but if you start in Ephesus, you can literally just travel clockwise and hit up all these little cities and drop off this letter to each church and have them read it and so on and so forth. So it formed a, a nice little route there for somebody to deliver this letter. But at the same time, the source goes on to argue that John is interested in numbers. As you see throughout the book of Revelation, he's interested in numbers. And the number seven is often symbolic in scripture of totality or completeness. So they would argue that the implication of that is what John is getting at is this letter is not just for these seven actual churches. It's also for the whole church. And not just during John's days, but the church throughout history since John's day. So in other words, this, this letter, God intends for us to also read and to hear and so on. So he's writing to these seven churches, and at the time of his writing, Roman persecution of Christians was widespread. 
And there are false teachings all over the place. This is why, especially in chapter 1, John is going to remind us that this is the testimony, not just of him, but also of God himself. That this is a trustworthy um, declaration or prophecy that you can trust it. It really is from God. Because there was a lot of false teachings around, and Roman authorities were beginning to enforce emperor worship. In other words, you better worship the emperor as king, as lord, as god, or else. And so even John himself has been exiled to the island of Patmos because of his faith in Jesus, because of his work in, uh, of just carrying the gospel around. Um, and so he has himself been exiled and punished and so on. Um, but he's writing to them to warn them, as Jesus is warning them, against the coming or now arrived opposition and oppression because some christians at this time just like in today's culture and context were seeking to compromise with the roman government well maybe we really can have multiple gods maybe we really can still worship the emperor and worship jesus and still live like the culture in the world and still love jesus and do all these kind of things and john is saying listen listen you need to stand firm in these last days. You cannot take the disposition, we have no king but Caesar. That's what they declare when they put Jesus on the cross. It's either Jesus is your Lord or he's not. There is no middle ground, right? As we see with Laodicea, you can't be lukewarm in this. You have to decide one way or the other. And John is going to remind them, Jesus is going to remind them and us to remain firm, to remain loyal, to be patient, um, like just abide in Jesus, walk with Jesus, remain true to the faith and so on, um, and be comforted by the fact that God is in control. Jesus is coming back. Be comforted by these things. Um, so we looked at all that last week. We also reviewed these five interpretational approaches to Revelation. So in other words, there's a lot of different views on how you approach Revelation. Um, I was telling somebody the other day, if I just went back to my seminary where I you know, got my you know, schooling done in Scripture, so to speak, um, I could have gotten five different professors at my seminary, and they all five would have probably fallen on a different spot here, right? Um, there's just all sorts of different approaches to this, and, and people have their reasons for taking it different ways. Um, but we've reviewed these, and we'll look more at them as we get later in this book. But there, you'll see the five there on your handouts. Um, the, the first one that we looked at was the futurist view, the futurist view. And to help you fill in that blank, you can just write future. This is the, the view that is about the future, the future view. Start writing these down for you. So the future view basically sees everything from Revelation 4.1 and beyond as happening in the future, meaning it hasn't happened yet. Even for us sitting here right now in this room, it, it's going to happen. It, it's all in the future. Um, there's a few details that, that they would say aren't technically in the future, but the majority of it is in the future. And then the second one you have there is the historicist view. And the way that you can kind of remember this one is just write, we're in it view. This view is a little deceiving with its title, but it basically has to do with 
they would say that Revelation is dealing with everything from Jesus' first advent, which just means his first coming, so Christmas, what we celebrated Christmas, his first coming, everything that's happened from that point all the way up to his second advent, his second coming. So they would say Revelation is referring to past, present, and future. It's referring to the whole history of the church from basically the time Jesus was born to the time he comes back again. So they would say it's past, present, and future. And then the third view is the preterist view, which the best way to remember this is just think it's finished. It's finished view. So this approach basically says everything in Revelation from Revelation 4, 1 and beyond has already happened. This, this view stands in the most contrast with the futurist view. And so they would say, no, it's already happened, meaning it happened based in the days of Jesus when he was walking the earth with his first arrival and everything. So it happened in those days, or it happened right before John wrote this book, right as he's writing this book, or immediately right after he wrote this book. But either way, they would say it's already happened. The only thing we're waiting for now is his appearing and the new creation and all that that we see in Revelation 21 and 22 at the end of the book. So the preterist says, basically, it's finished, it's done. And then the fourth one is this idealist view, which the best way to remember this probably is symbolic. I did not spell that right. S-Y-M-B-O-L-I-C. So they would say it's symbolic, meaning not necessarily that everything is just a symbol or allegory, but they would basically say really what Revelation is doing is presenting general truths, general ideas between good and evil. Um, you see this throughout Scripture, how Babylon is kind of this representation of any person, family, or especially culture or kingdom that kind of sets itself up against God, kind of denies him or bells against him. This goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel, uh, which happened kind of in the land of Babylon. Um, but basically any culture or person or family that follows that lineage or disposition, they can expect you know, condemnation and being cast out and so on and so forth. But, so they would, the idealist would argue that, hey, it's symbolic, kind of representing general truths about what it means to follow Jesus or have faith in God and what it means to not and what happens to those who do and what happens to those who don't. Uh, but it's all just kind of symbolic. It's not necessarily referring to a specific time period, past, present, or future. It's just all more about the ideas that are within it. And then the fifth view is the eclectic view. Um, this you can just kind of write in. It's a combination view, or it's a combo view. This view would basically say, hey, all these have their strengths and weaknesses, um, but it's, it's kind of somewhere in the middle of all of this. It's referring to past, it's referring to the present, it's referring to the future, it's referring to some general truths, but it's also referring to some, some very specific periods of time, whether that's in the past, present, or future. So we kind of reviewed those, and we'll look a little bit more at them as we go along. Um, but we read the first three verses last week, Revelation 1, 1 through 3. And within those verses, we read... Starting off, the revelation of, some of you, I, I had you show your hands last week, who had of in your translation, but some of you also have then the revelation from Jesus Christ. Um, 
So what's the difference there, of or from? Well, it has everything to do with the original language, and it can really be taken both ways, or it can be taken either or. So which is it? I would argue it's both. I would argue from my, just the context and, and just the study and everything that, that I've done, I would say, and this is your next point, Jonathan would argue that the book of Revelation is the revelation from Jesus, the revelation from Jesus, about Jesus, for the followers of Jesus. You could also write servants. Because as you read the book of Revelation, you'll notice John refers often to those who are followers of Jesus as his servants. Um, a lot of times uh, he refers to the followers of Jesus as his servants. So I would argue that it's really both. It's the revelation from Jesus about Jesus, and it's all for the followers of Jesus. So, and I mentioned this back in December before the holiday break, but I would argue that ultimately revelation, this book, is about how the prophecies and the promises given to us throughout Scripture, how they point to Jesus. They point to Jesus, past, present, and future. But also I would argue that additionally the revelation is about how the prophecies and the promises given to us throughout Scripture point to the bride or the body of Jesus as well. It's all about Jesus, but Jesus, as Paul would say, is the head of the church. And, of course, you, you've got to know this because the big left hook in Revelation at the very end is the revealing of the bride of the Lamb, Revelation 21.9 and, and so on. We'll look more at that. Um, so, specifically, how the Lord will fulfill the prophecies and the promises pertaining to Jesus and his bride, those who love him, those who have placed faith in him. Um, I would further argue that Revelation is a very unique style. That's why it's so unique and it's just set up and everything. It's a very unique style approach of teaching, specifically from Jesus. Remember, this is from Jesus. John is going to remind us, hey, this is, this is coming from him. Like, this is not coming from me. I didn't just, like, make this up. This is coming from him. And it's a very unique style of teaching. And it's an approach by Jesus that we've seen him do before. Specifically in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. So you remember in Matthew chapter 5, and you can go back and read those couple chapters, the Sermon on the Mount and everything, and Jesus makes this pretty big declaration. He said, listen, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. And then from there, basically, throughout his Sermon on the Mount, he seeks to kind of bring understanding to the law and kind of how he's come to fulfill that and so on. But I'll give you an example. He'll say things like, and you'll see it all through the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, right? But I tell you, which is, you better not do that yourself, right? You've heard it said in the scripture, but I tell you, you should go do something else, right? That's, Jesus is taking a massive position of authority by saying, you've heard it said in the law, you should not do this, but I'm telling you, 
what that means. And so, for example, let's stick with the adultery. He says, you've heard it said you, should not commit, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you lusted after anybody in your heart, you've committed adultery with that person. And so he brings kind of this new understanding on that. And, of course, he would later say, man, it's what's coming out of you that's defiling you. You're, you're defiled. You're, you know, there's something in you that, that is jacked up and wrong and so on and so forth. Um, but he's seeking to bring understanding like, hey, you've heard it said this, but let me tell you what it means. Well, he does that with the law in the Sermon on the Mount. Revelation is a very similar approach that is focused on bringing understanding not to the law, but to the promises and the prophecies that specifically John's Jewish readers would have grown up hearing and anticipating and knowing about. And it's about how Jesus came not to abolish the promises and the prophecies, but how he came to fulfill those prof promises and prophecies and how he is fulfilling them right now and ultimately how he will fulfill them at the culmination of all things. So in other words, the teaching style is like this. You've heard it said about this prophecy, but let me show you what that prophecy actually means or how it's been fulfilled or is being fulfilled or will be fulfilled in and through Jesus. And almost all of it seems to point back to, one way or another, to Jesus' death on a cross and his resurrection. And what that means for Jesus and also what that means for his bride, past, present, and future. And I'll give you an example. Revelation chapter 5, which we'll get to here in a few weeks. But Revelation chapter 5, here's John and everybody's, they're, they're looking for someone to break the seal. And, you know, those of you who've read through this, you, you'll remember this scene. They're looking for somebody to break the seal. And nobody can. They can't find anybody who can break the seal. And John begins to weep. There's, you know, he's sorrowful and, and sad. And, and then the messenger, the angel comes, which you see this angel all throughout Revelation. The messenger comes and says, hey, John, just don't be sad. Behold, the Lion of Judah. Now, for those of you who are reading our Bible plan online, like through the, through the app, we just read this. This should immediately, the Lion of Judah, take you back to Genesis 49. Remember Jacob, Israel, is lying on his deathbed, and he has the 12 sons there, and he begins to bless each son, right? You remember that, right? And he gets to Judah, and he starts talking about this lion that will come from his offspring. And this is kind of where we begin to see this Lion of Judah. And it carries on and is built on throughout um, the scriptures. Um, but you see this Lion of Judah, this root of David, who is going to be the king, who's going to be the ruler, who's going to just basically conquer. And so, in other words, the messenger is telling John, behold, this Old Testament imagery. Behold, John, what you've been told. And so John hears this prophecy about the Lion of Judah, and immediately his heart would have gone back to these things that he would have grown up hearing about. The root of David, he's the one. But how does he open the seal? How did he fight? How did the Lion of Judah gain victory? How did he conquer? How did he finish the work? How did he open up a new way for humanity to become a new creation? Behold, the old has gone, the new has come. How did he create in you the ability to sing a new song? His death on the cross. That's what the New Testament reveals. That's what Paul said. It was by the cross that he disarmed the enemy forces and the evil forces. This is how he gained victory. He's actually at his cross. 
and by the blood in which he shed, and so on and so forth. And so, what does John see? So, in essence, the angel presents this, hey, John, behold the Lion of Judah, and kind of stirs up this, this memory. You've heard this prophecy, but then John turns, and what does he see in Revelation 5? Not a Lion of Judah, but a bloody lamb. It's not that Jesus is literally a lamb, but that's New Testament imagery then. He's our sacrificial lamb. This takes you back to the Passover. This takes you back to how in which God has set you free from sin by the blood of Jesus. This is why John in Revelation 1 will later say, how has he freed you from sin by his blood? Right? And so, in other words, you've heard this prophecy, John. Let me show you, my servants, what it means specifically how it's been fulfilled or how it is being fulfilled or how it will be fulfilled in and through Jesus. As Paul would tell the Corinthians, all the prophecies have their yes in Jesus. So it's a revelation from Jesus, about Jesus, for the followers of Jesus. It points to how Jesus has, how he is, or how he will fulfill these promises and these prophecies all throughout Scripture. And there's over 2,000 of them, mind you. And a lot of them have already been fulfilled. Um, and also what this means for his body, his people, those who love him, those who have placed faith in him, his bride, the bride of the Lamb. And so this revelation was given to show his people the things that must soon take place, we keep reading, must soon take place. And later on, John says, the time is near. And so we looked at this last week. What does John mean by soon and near? These are really just kind of terms that refer to kind of relative general time, so to speak. But they, in essence, mean that these things that John is writing about and has been shown, they're coming. They are upon us. They, are, they will happen. They are imminent. In the meantime, what John is going to get at with them is here's what you're to be about. In light of these things that have, that are, and that will soon take place, this is now what you're to be about. Stand firm, remain loyal to him, abide in him, endure, so on and so forth. For behold, he is coming, and he's coming on the clouds. And that's what we'll see over these next couple of chapters. But let's look at Revelation 1, 4 through 11. Revelation 1, 4 through 11. And so John continues, and this is what he writes. So he says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit, depending on your translation, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. So let's stop right there for a moment, because as we walk through this, I'm going to kind of stop us and kind of explain a little bit the best we can as we go along. Um, but this kind of brings me up to your next point here. Within these verses that we just read there, we explicitly see in kind of John's opening letter here with them, we explicitly see the Trinity, the Trinity. T R I T R I N I T Y, the Trinity. 
Meaning we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In other words, greetings not just from John, but from the triune God himself. And so God the Father is described as the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. As, as God would tell Moses at the burning bush, like, who do I say sent me, and so on, just, I am. Like, I was, I am, I am to come. Like, just tell them, I am sent you. Uh, and meanwhile, we'll look at the Son here in a second, but then we see the Holy Spirit here. And the Holy Spirit is described as the seven spirits, or the sevenfold spirit before his throne. Now, why seven spirits, or why sevenfold spirit? Well, according to one source, some understand John to mean the sevenfold spirit in his fullness. Remember, seven is kind of this completion or fullness. or um, So sevenfold spirit in his fullness. And some would argue that he's borrowing from the imagery of Zechariah chapter 4, because again, in Revelation, almost every other line is like an Old Testament reference. Um, but anyways, in Zechariah chapter 4, we see the ancient prophet sees a lampstand with seven bowls supplied with oil from two nearby olive trees. And John, as we see later on in chapter 1, connects the church, the lampstands, to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Remember, think about Pentecost, right? The birth of the church is when the Holy Spirit of God came at the Pentecost. Remember what Jesus promised to his followers. Like, hey, it's good that I leave you so that the helper can come, so that the Holy Spirit of God can come. And so some people argue that the seven spirits represent the activity of the risen Christ through the Holy Spirit in and to the seven churches here. And some would argue that this figure brings great encouragement to the churches. The Holy Spirit does, for, as we read in Zechariah chapter 4, not by might, strength, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty, that the churches serve God. But it's also kind of a sobering warning for the churches, because as he begins to look at each church, the seven churches, you begin to see their response to the Holy Spirit. But either way, this is crucial imagery, right? Where you see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit here. It's crucial imagery where you have the I Am and the Spirit who is before his throne and the Son there. Because this is imagery that you will see later on in Revelation chapter 22. In Revelation 22, among the city, you have the Father is there. The Son is there, and from the throne of God is flowing this river, right? This river of life. Jesus would call it living water. And it's coursing through the heart of the city. That's the imagery as you open up Revelation 22. It's flowing through the heart of the city, which, as the messenger told John in Revelation 21.9, the city is the bride of the Lamb. And so the city is the bride of the Lamb, so from the throne of God is flowing the Spirit of God in and through the heart of who? The church. That's why Paul says, it's no longer I who lives, it's Christ who lives in me. Not literally Jesus himself, but the Holy Spirit. They're distinct from each other, yet one with each other. So to have the Holy Spirit of God in you is to have Jesus in you. Just as Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. To behold Jesus is to behold the Father. 
And the same way that they have the Holy Spirit in you is to have Jesus in you. And Jesus would tell the woman at the well, John 4, I will give you what? Living water. And we find out later on that this eternal life that lives within us comes from not an it, but a who, and that is the Holy Spirit of God in which he promises. And so what do you have this imagery at in Revelation 22? You have this river of life flowing through the heart of the city, and on either side it's what? It's producing fruit. You have the fruits of these trees on either side. Paul would call it the fruits of the Spirit. What did Jesus say? Like, those who abide in me and I in them, they are the ones who will produce fruit. Why? Because it's the Holy Spirit of God who lives in you, who will produce fruit. And we see what that fruit is when we read a place like 1 John and James and so on and, and so forth. And so, just like in the opening words of Genesis, you see the triune God present, acting, and all over the place. Right? So even take your, your memory back to Genesis 1, right? In the beginning, God. So God is there. Right, and he creates the heavens and the earth, right? We read in like Psalm 33, 6, that it was by the word that he brought all things into existence. Right, and we find out the word is not an it, but a person. When we get to John 1, when he says, in the beginning the word was with God, the word was God's, right? So you have the Father and the Son there at the beginning of creation, and also who's hovering over the waters? The Spirit. So you have the triune God present at creation, you have the triune God present at the moment of conception when Jesus, the light of the world, steps down into darkness and is conceived inside Mary. You have the Holy Spirit of God present when they hovering over those disciples, those followers of Jesus at Pentecost and so on. Right? God is present, active, moving, involved in all of this. And then what happens here at the end of all things, you have God present. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So... Revelation, in a way, as we'll see as we walk through this, brings it all together. So again, your next point here. Um, through this revelation, God is revealing how he is bringing it all together and how all things have their completion and their fulfillment in Jesus. In Jesus. So again, it's from Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's for the follower of Jesus. It, God is just active and moving in all of this. And as we find out here in this opening in John 1 is that Jesus is the faithful witness to these things. So what John is writing, what he is putting down on paper, Jesus is the faithful witness to these things. He's putting his stamp of approval on it, that this is from not just anybody or any source, but from God himself, from Jesus himself. And Jesus is what? The firstborn from the dead the ruler of the kings on earth, John says. So many people have asked, who are the kings of the earth over whom Jesus rules? Well, one source put it this way. There's really three options. John could mean emperors, like rulers, kings. So in John's day, it would have been like Domitian or Nero. It could have been territorial rulers like Pilate and Herod. Um, in that case, John was affirming that even though Jesus is not physically present on earth and that these earthly leaders appear to be in rule, it's really in reality Jesus that is ruling over them. So in our context, we might say, even though it appears like the U.S. government has authority over this jurisdiction, it's really God who has authority over the jurisdiction. In other words, Jesus is ruling over them. So that's one option. Another approach holds that Jesus 
what John means by this is that he rules over the defeated enemies of believers. Satan, the dragon, as we'll see later on as an image here of Satan, sin, death, the Antichrist, so on and so forth. So John could mean that. A third possibility sees believers as the rulers of the earth. And so those who hold to this view kind of bring up the fact that Jesus said, you're the city on the hill. You're the light in the darkness. Um, he sends us out in his name and his authority and so on and so forth. Um, here's the thing, though. All three ideas are true. Jesus is the head of the church. He is over his people. He is over enemy forces. As, as Paul would make clear, that he has, he's over every power, seen or unseen. Even Jesus himself would say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Like, he has authority over all of this. So, whether we're talking an earthly king, or a Satan, or death itself, or us, Jesus has, as Paul would say, supremacy. Right? Think of, like, Colossians 1, right? He has supremacy. Uh, which one John means explicitly in this moment? It's, I don't know. But it's probably a yes. Jesus is supreme over every authority or power, seen or unseen, even over death itself. And he is the one who's testifying to these things. And it's he that John goes on to write, or to him who loves us. This is the God we're talking about, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, the author of Hebrews says. The one who, as Paul told Timothy, dwells in unapproachable light. The one who is the creator and sustainer of everything. He loves us. To him who loves us. And has freed us, has set us free. How? From our sins by his blood. In the same way he set the Israelites free by putting the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and set them free and part of the waters and so on so forth. Now ultimately he has set us free from our sins by his blood. He died once for all, for all. And, John goes on to say, verse 6, to him who has made us a kingdom, made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Now, just stop right there. Because, again, so many Old Testament references, because I, I, again, but I would argue what John is doing, what Jesus is doing, is say, hey, you've heard it said this, let me show you how it's being fulfilled, has been fulfilled or will be fulfilled. But this should immediately take you to Exodus 19. In Exodus 19, there in that chapter, we see the Israelites come to the desert of Sinai. Very popular mountain. A lot happens at the base of that mountain. A lot happens on that mountain, right? This is where God gives the law to Moses. But Moses goes up to God and the Lord calls him um, up from the mountain and says, and this is Exodus 19, verse 3. This is what the Lord says. This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob... And what you are to tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. Again, he's calling their memory back to how he delivered them from what? Slavery. How he set them free. And how I carried you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations... You, my people, will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, 
You will be for me a kingdom, a kingdom of priests, and you will be a holy nation. And these are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Key words in there, if you fully obey me. In other words, if you have the faith of Abraham. This is why Paul later on in Galatians says, if you have the faith of Abraham, you are his descendants. Why? Because it's about the seed, right? And as Paul would argue in Galatians, the seed of Abraham is singular, meaning Jesus. So Jesus would say and teach us that he is the vine, we are the branches, right? So in other words, those who place faith in him, that branch, in other words, is grafted in. So even if you're an ethnic Gentile, that's what Paul is saying, man, you've been grafted into the vine. It's all about Jesus. It all points to Jesus. And so what John is saying is, man, he who loves us, he set us free from our sins, just like he did with the Israelites long ago, from slavery and bondage and decay in Egypt. He has set us free, not by the blood of a goat or a physical lamb, but by himself, his own blood, has set us free. And so he's made us into this kingdom of priests. In the New Testament, Peter picks up on this and says in 1 Peter 2.9, You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. This is language that Paul uses in Ephesians 5, right? He says, man, you once were darkness, but now you have become what? Children of the light. So he calls us to live as children of the light, right? Who's the light? John, or Jesus said in John 6 or 8 that he is the light of the world, right? And John would talk about this in John 1, how the light has stepped down into darkness, right? And so Peter kind of picks up on that. But again, this revelation is bringing it all together, past, present, and future, and revealing how everything has its completion and fullness as Paul would say it's yes in Jesus. So John continues. So he who loves us, he who has set us free from sin by his blood, who has made us into a kingdom of priests, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And behold, he, talking about Jesus, is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. So one person describes these verses like this. Christ's coming will be, in a way, supernatural. He's coming with the clouds. And in some manner, he will come in such a way in which every eye will behold him, even to those who have pierced him, even to those who put him to death. But this promise combines Daniel 7, which Daniel kind of has this vision in Daniel 7. It combines that and Zechariah 12. But Daniel 7 is a crucial passage because John, throughout this whole book of Revelation, will allude to Daniel 7 at least 31 times. It's a massive passage for John. Um, but it's very clear. What John is envisioning here, what Daniel envisioned it's very clear throughout the New Testament also that when Jesus comes again, his second advent, it'll be obvious. It'll be obvious.
Think of sight and sound. You'll hear it. You'll see it. You'll know it. You will not miss the grand finale. Whatever veil is separating this reality from his reality will be just dissolved, stripped away, so on and so forth. There's no mistaking it. You, it's sight and sound, and this, in essence, is what John is getting at. Like, you will see him coming, and not just you, but every eye will behold him in all his glory and splendor and perfection. And so, I'm trying to decide if we got time to get into that. Uh, I don't think we do. But either way, there's no mistaking. It'll be obvious. You'll see it. You'll know it. You'll hear it. Um, so then John goes on, verse 8. We've got to finish up here. Verse 8. Then he transitions here, and he says, I am, this is the Lord God speaking, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. So in other words, anybody doubting that Jesus will come again in all his splendor and glory, God himself is declaring, I am who I am, and this is my stamp of approval. I, this is my promise to you. He's coming again in all his glory, in all his splendor. God is putting his signature, so to speak, on what John is testifying to. And now what's interesting about this language here is um, nowhere else in Scripture do we see God refer to himself as the Alpha and the Omega, except right here in Revelation. And if you know the Greek language, Alpha and Omega, those, that's like the, that'd be like saying A and Z. I am the A and I am the Z. I'm the first and I'm the last. Right? It, it, it begins with me. I'm all throughout this. It ends with me. I, again, I am who I am. And I am the Lord God Almighty. There's, there's like four massive declarations of titles that John lists, or that God lists of himself here at least, in verse 8. On the beginning and the end, I am the, or I, I am the one who is, who was, and who is to come. I am the Almighty, the Lord God is saying this. Um, it is a stamp of authority, of power, um, to say that everything we read in here, even if we kind of don't see things happening the way we think it should, or that God is saying, no, no, no I'm in control. I am putting my stamp of approval on this, that what John is writing, it's from me. You can trust it. So in other words, God is the, as one person said, God is the absolute source of all creation and history. Nothing lies outside of him. Therefore, he is the Lord God of all and is continually present to his people as the Almighty. Thus, at the beginning of creation, we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit throughout history. We see God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit present, active, and moving, and at the culmination of all things. We see God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit present. He is at work in all of it. And while we rebelled and sinned, God made a way for us. God made a way for the saving of many lives in and through Jesus. He freed us. He set us free. And he has plans for those who love him. And so John goes on to say, verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation or in the suffering. Meaning, as Jesus said, in this world, you will face tribulation. 
you're going to face hard times. You're going to face oppression. You're going to face opposition. And as we've heard from testimonies, especially um, from all around the world, from our fellow brothers and sisters, some of them are being jailed right now, tortured, beaten, killed. And you study throughout church history, you're like, oh my gosh, the things that fellow believers have gone through. And John is saying, listen, I'm in the exile right now because of the faith in Jesus. Like, I have been banished to an island. You are my fellow partners in this tribulation, in this suffering. You're my fellow partners, my brothers and sisters of the kingdom. And you're my fellow partners in the patient endurance. Perseverance and endurance is a constant theme throughout the New Testament. And these are ours in Jesus. So John is saying, I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's Day. And so the Lord's Day in the early church was the first day of the week in which Jesus came back from the dead. That would be Sunday. And he said, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And again, as we'll pick up next week, we'll kind of look as he continues that and sets up Jesus' address to each one of these churches and why. But again, John is writing to these seven churches. And at the time of writing, there's great persecution. There's a lot of false teaching, right? People are saying, what, what is truth, right? A very similar to our day and age. A lot of persecution, a lot of opposition, a lot of darkness, a lot of people not knowing what in the world truth is. And God is saying, man, this is trustworthy. Come to my word, sit in my presence, draw near to me. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear, let them seek me, right? And so God is providing this as a way of saying, listen, stand firm, be patient, remain loyal to Jesus, be comforted. Remember, this is a pastoral kind of letter. Be comforted by the fact that God is in control. He's the Almighty, the Alpha and the Omega. He's in control. And Jesus is coming again. The one who, is, who loved us and who set us free from our sins by his blood. The one who has conquered our sin and death and resurrection and offers us something pretty spectacular when it's all said and done as we see at the end of the book. But let me close this in prayer and then we'll be dismissed. Uh, if you got questions, come see me. And if you got time to wipe down some tables, we'd greatly appreciate that too. But let me close this in prayer. Father, we thank you. We love you. And Lord, I pray that as we walk through this book that you gave to John to give to these seven churches and to really all your followers, Lord, help us to see how you have acted throughout history, how you're currently acting. And Lord, your ultimate how you will act in the future. Help us to, to see all that has been fulfilled, all that is being fulfilled, all that will be fulfilled, and help it bring us confidence, assurance, peace, that even when we face the tribulation that we might face in this world, that we would endure, that we would recognize who we are in Christ, that we would recognize and fully know the love that you have for your people and what you have in store for your people. That that would build in us a sense of endurance and perseverance no matter the cost, no matter the situation. Help us to remain loyal to Jesus, faithful to Jesus. And may you, 
get all the glory. We thank you. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. Thank you all. We'll see you all later.